chances are, if you like this, then you like the Best of Ties podcast, brought to you by Lush and the Quietus, in which John Doran talks to people about some of the best and worst times they've been through. Find it on the Quietus Radio on iTunes. Bella Goes is Dead is one of the most influential songs of all time. Few songs have spawned a genre. I like to call that genre post-punk. Some people like to call it goth. The germination of the song itself, created in Northampton of all places, is a fascinating process, which the band's genius guitar player, Daniel Ash, tells us all about. Um, yeah, we were re- we went in the studio within four weeks of being a band and recorded Bella along with uh, two or three other tracks. Um, yeah. Dark Entry, and a track called Harry, Dark Entry. So I think we recorded five tracks in four hours, mixed them, the whole thing. You know, because we're all broke then, so we're all chipping in our money, you know, to, to, to make these tracks. It's a little 16-track studio, uh, all homemade gear. And when you walked into this place, it's a real character called Derek Tonkins, and it was like walking into somebody's living room. You know, it had the it had the sort of the tacky seventies wallpaper and carpet on the floor. Um, Derek would be a chain smoker completely. He was like sixty fags a day. Then he'd get a throbbing headache. So we always had his um his aspirin, big tub of aspirin next to it to counteract the chain smoking. And sometimes we smoke, we'd all be smoking so much in there that you, we literally couldn't see each other over the side of the room. Then he just suddenly opened the back door and then get one of those sprays of, you know, lemon spray or something and spray it all out and we all start again. But yeah, it was, um, it was uh, yeah, it was uh, fun times, though, especially when we recorded Bella, because that was like first or second take, all done live. Pete actually had a stinking cold on that day, but both the vocals sound great. And um, that was it. That was we were on our way then. I mean, how many times you actually played that song before you recorded it? Just just in rehearsals, or was it? Uh, yeah, it's 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 interesting story. It's one of those magic moments I call them. I found we've been to, we've done a couple of rehearsals. Um, Dave actually wasn't in the band when we started. We had this other guy playing bass, but he was really bad. I had yeah. to show him every note to play. He just used to play it on the E string, you know. Okay, now it goes up to D, then it goes back down to A. Not with Bella, but with any track. Anyway, Dave came to see us, and he says, I've got to be in the band, I've got to be in the band. Anyway, cut long story short, he was in the band. But the story with Bella was, we, you know, we'd had a couple of rehearsals, and, and um, I called Dave up, or he called me, I can't remember, and I said, Dave, I've got this riff, and it's a really haunting riff. I'm not using normal chords. And it sounds really haunting. And he goes, that's real weird you should say that. Because I've got this lyric about Bella Lugosi, the actor who plays the vampire. And I says, really? Okay. So next rehearsal, uh, we walk in there. Dave gives the lyric sheet to Pete. Kevin starts playing that bossing over beat right off the bat. I start playing that riff. Dave comes in with those bass lines and Pete sings that vocal pretty much as you hear it on the record. Right off the bat, boom, it was written like immediately. Strange thing. You know, then we, we got chips in our mind together and went to the studio and, and got it, you know, recorded it. It was just magic right from the get-go. We didn't have to work it out at all. Everything, it was very strange. Everything worked, fell into place. Yeah. 
guess at that point in time, yes. you didn't really have an idea of what the band was meant to sound like, did you? Just uh... um, Yeah, well, I mean, okay. It's, Peter and myself are pretty much obsessed with the whole glam rock thing. Kevin, Kevin's favourite band was The Clash. Yeah. And The Pistols and The Dams, but he, The Clash was the one for Kevin. David was always ahead of his time. I remember when we were at art school, he was listening to things like Dr. Feelgood. We, we knew what we liked, you know, and, and, you know, Peter and myself, pretty obsessed with the whole Bowie thing and T-Rex, Roxy Music and Iggy. And as I said, you know, Kevin was three years younger, so he was not, he's, he's, it was all about the punk thing for Kevin. And you can see it in the early photos now when you look at it. It's really funny because Kevin's trying to look like one of the Clash. And, me and Peter trying to look like Bowie, you know, or at least glam rock. And then David's sort of there as an anchor because he, 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 he liked a real cross-section of music. The thing I liked about David, you know, he was ahead of his time at art school. So, you know, we, we, knew, we knew what we liked. Yeah, absolutely. But we didn't want to sound like anybody else. And we didn't. You know, there's obviously a heavy Bowie influence there with the vocals, obviously, and Iggy Pop. Of course, I don't deny that. But, uh, you know, the, the chemistry there... It was there, you know, that's something that's out of your hands. We just, you know, it's like the Beatles. How did those four guys, how did the Stones, how did they meet up? They just were meant to meet up, and it's the same with us. We were meant to meet up. Because, well, I, I knew that, uh, Pete from school, from like 10, 12 years old, all the way through school. And then David and Kevin I met at art school, you know, when I was like 17. So that's how we all met. And I've been in bands, they were called Power, you remember Power Pop? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, we there was a band called, we called ourselves The Craze, and another one was called Jack Plug and the Sockets, and they were <laughs> yeah. power, power pop bands, and that was with David and Kevin. You know, um, you know, we just did local gigs. We never got further than Northampton. But then as soon as the four of us got together, we were straight off down to the marquee, and I think the first thing we got was band called Gloria Monday. Do you remember those guys? Yeah, I do remember them, yeah. Yeah, yeah and we supported them. And uh, we also got on a magazine tour. Remember the band magazine? We got we had to pay them three grand to get on the tour, but we, we'd had our record deal by then with uh, Beggars, so we could afford to do it, and Beggars paid three grand so we could go on the road supporting magazines. You know, we had something, and we, we did know it. We, you know, because as soon as... Um, well, although I've been in these bands with Kevin and Dave, I phoned up Pete on a whim uh, after not seeing him for five years. Remembered where he lived. I didn't phone him up, actually. I just went, got my Ford Cortina Mark II that cost me 50 quid from my, my maths teacher at school. Yeah. Jumped in the car, drove 10 miles down the road, just knocked on his door, and he was just coming home from work. And I said, hey, do you want to be in a band? Because I always thought he looked brilliant. He should be in a band. And uh, he said, fuck yeah. So that was it. I got this little rehearsal room, just Pete and myself. And I had this little, you know, guitar and a little 15 watt amp. But I had this echo unit. So I put in his mic through the echo unit, put the echo on full, full wobble, one of those walking copycats. And he started singing out of the Sun newspaper. And I would be playing this reggae riff, which ended up being a song called Harry. And as soon as I heard his voice, and he started moving around straight away, just to two, and I thought, that's it, matter of time now.
We recorded Bella within three or four weeks of being a band, you know, so the chemistry was obviously there. So what was the first rehearsal like? Was it was it just basically everybody's just playing their own little direction, it all sort of hung together or was it? Yeah, well I, I had a I had a couple of riffs, you know, just to get it going. I I started this song out with Pete, which ended up being called Harry, which is about Debbie Harry. It's yeah. a reggae thing. Yeah, I've heard that. You know, and yeah. Dave Dave came along and just to have a listen and you know, there was there was Kevin, uh, Pete and myself, you know, and I just we started playing that reggae that track. You know, and we played a couple of others. I can't remember the others, but anyway we played them and then Dave took me aside afterwards and he said, he said, the band's fucking brilliant. He says, the singer is a diamond, but you've got the wrong bass player. Yeah. And I thought, I thought, you're not fucking joking because this bass player was useless. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, he, then Dave was in the next rehearsal and the rest is history, you know. So, so how much, how important was it, you know, like being in Northampton to this? Did it, did it, I mean, was it was it a reaction against the environment to be in Northampton? Or is it just not matter at all? It could be anywhere. It's for you, the English thing. At that time, as you know, unemployment was through the roof. It was, you know, crap weather in England, just the whole, the drudgery of the whole thing. And music was always a way out of that. That's why you get so many great bands in England, because the weather's shit. Yeah, yeah. Like, if you're in Southern California, everybody's out and about. They're, they're doing stuff, whereas in England, there's, you either go to the pub or you start a band. I yeah. don't think that has changed. I don't think that has changed much. It's a huge part of it. And, you know, if you listen to Dow stuff, it's not exactly um, tips around the fucking tulips. It's, it's you know, it's, it's not exactly tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. It's, we're pissed off, you know. And I know for Pete and myself, we went to this Catholic school, St. Mary's Catholic School, and it was real rough, you know, and you getting beaten up all the time and, and just the teachers were shit and the other kids were shit and we didn't, you know, me and Pete were the, those kids at the end of the class, the little arty farty kids that weren't into sports, the cliche thing. So, you know, we'd be doing painting and stuff and all the other kids were playing football, that type of thing. So we had a connection right from the get-go. So, and, uh, you know, all that stuff that came out on the gigs, particularly for Pete and myself, they were like exorcisms. I mean, we weren't faking it there. We were pissed off. And it was all that shit that we'd gone through at school. And the whole hypocrisy of the Catholic faith and all of that stuff mixed in. When did you start playing guitar? Was that obviously slightly before punk? Or was there a... uh, yeah, 15 years old. So, uh, I don't know. That's 1972, just when Bowie was coming out with the whole Ziggy thing. I remember my dad took me down to London to Shaftesbury Avenue and he bought me a, Fen um, a Fender Telecaster uh, copy. It was 25 quid. And to be honest, I'm really lazy, so all I'd do when I got it home, I just used to look at it. Uh, I couldn't be bothered to play it. I just For a couple of years, I just used to look at it because I thought it looked amazing. It was a starburst color, and I remember cutting out plastic stars and sticking them on it. <laughs> I yeah, just yeah. fall in asleep. I fall in asleep with it at the end of the bed, and I'd wake up in the morning. and I'd be holding the neck of the guitar. Yeah, you know, just, yeah. just, you know. But all the other guys at art school, they were all trying to play like Jimi Hendrix, and I was way too lazy to even attempt that. And I also mixed in with the fact that what's the point in sounding like Hendrix? He's already done it. And then the whole punk thing happened, and I thought. 
yes, just like they all say, I thought, yeah, I can do this. I can do the three chord thing. And that's when it all started, you know. It was definitely the punk thing that spurred me on. Seeing Steve Jones up there on the telly, you know, and uh, what an amazing sound he gets with that Les Paul. Incredible. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's one of the uh, myths about the Sex Pistols, where people say they're inspiring because they couldn't play. They're actually inspiring because oh, they could that's play. Absolute, yeah. Yeah, they, they could play. play they play fucking brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I've seen live footage from the early days and they could really play. I thought maybe they couldn't. It was still a studio thing. But when I saw, well, I've seen footage of live gigs from the early days and they could they could really play. Absolutely. So in a yeah. sense, your, your kind of laziness, uh, did that kind of force your hand to play the guitar? Uh, like, Say that again? I missed I miss that, sorry. Your, your self-confessed laziness at the guitar, did that kind of force your oh, hand yeah. to, to play in, in, in a... In a style where you created noises instead of like playing more conventional just solos and chords. Yeah, yeah. Initially, that was definitely um, it was much easier for me to just do. I mean, obviously, I learned three or four chords, but then I couldn't be bothered to learn scales. I still don't know scales now. Uh, I couldn't be bothered to learn scales, or I would make up chords, particularly with with acoustic guitar with a twelve string. And if somebody asked me what they are, I have no clue, but I would just find them and they sounded good, so I'd use them. But I, you know, I, the idea of learning to read music or, or just learning scales is much too, just completely boring to me. So I just, yeah, at first it was, um, okay, well, I've got a really limited thing here, you know, so I treated it like a piece of wood with six strings on it, and then it sort of developed from there, really. Um, yeah, but I kept, you know, things like um, dark entries. I mean, that's one note on the E string just going down four frets. That's all it is. you're making in the initial Bauhaus it's uh this is not conventional rock music the bass guitar doesn't sit behind the guitars the guitars are not playing solos the drums are playing kind of really yeah. off kilter patterns and it's in, in a sense yeah. and it's it's kind of like post-punk early on the way and what i always define, yeah it is and what i define as post-punk is everybody's playing lead at the same time really aren't they again it's something that's organic whereas it just it's like the idea with Bauhaus when they said, well, how'd you get the idea of all wearing black? Well, we didn't ever talk about it, ever. It just happened. I know, I, know from my, I know for myself I would wear black because I was always tinkering around with motorcycles. So black was, you can't wear any other color if you're fucking around with a motorcycle, especially an English one because they leak oil. So that's why I would wear black because I was always on a bike. Even back then, I'd always have a motorcycle since I can remember. So... You know, but it looks it looked good, but we never talked about it. And, and I think it's the same with the. Uh, there are similarities in the bands that came out post punk, but I think it's a combination of having no money, limited amount of gear that you can use, and just making the best out of the fact that you can't play very well. Was it was it the dub thing in there right from the start as well? Oh sound. yeah, well the dub the dub thing came from David and Kevin. They were really banging to um, 70s dub big time. We'd always be hearing that when we were on the road. 
and before. Yeah, uh, Dave and Kev introduced me to the whole dub uh, reggae thing. Absolutely. Because Balagosi is like, I mean, it's almost like a, a pure dub track, really. Um, yeah, and I've never really... I, there is something where I, I nicked that riff for Bella, and I, I'm not going to tell you what it is, though, because... Well, that'll just spoil just, it, yeah, yeah. No, not that it'll spoil it. I, I don't want anybody to know where I got it from. <laughs> but yeah. I, 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 I weirded out the, the tuning on the guitar to get what I got, but it's based on a... It's based on um, a very, very, very well-known pop song. Well, when we went in on that day, we'd been together. I mean, people are saying we were together six weeks. My memory of it is we were only together for four weeks. But one of the first things we played when we got together was Bella, and then we had these other tracks that never made it out there in the big wide world, if you like. So they're actually included as a bonus thing on this on this EP as such. Uh, but I'll be quite honest, I just done another interview, and I was saying to the guy, I don't have any memory of recording the other tracks in that session because Bella was such a magic moment that all my memories of being in that little studio on that day at Beck Studios in Wellingborough there were, is about Bella. I don't, re I have no recollection of recording the other songs at all. It's all about Bella for me. So there's not really much I can comment on as far as, you know, the process of recording and what happened on the day as far as the other tracks is concerned. My, all my memories are about recording that song. It was, you know, that, that, it was mega. The other pale in comparison to be honest for any other band those other songs would have been a very good start but when you've got Bella Lugosi it's like I mean, yeah what, when I know it just blows everything it blows everything else out the water it was just it, I was just done an interview just now and I was just telling them that it was instant when we first went in in a rehearsal room and got together it was like Kevin just started playing that drum beat I had that guitar riff I did have that riff worked out at home and then, you know, Pete, you know, David handed over the lyric because he wrote the lyric to that one. He handed it to Pete. Pete started singing just as he does on the record as you hear it. It was pretty much exactly that the first time we rehearsed the song. And nobody knew what the song was. I just had the riff and David had the lyrics. And it just, it just happened that day in the rehearsal room. This is before we went in the studio. So when that happened, we went, let's get in the studio sharpish and get this down while we've got it. And we, we booked the, the studio immediately, you know, and went in there and recorded. So I mean, it's completely instant. That That's only happened a couple of, well, not, nothing's happened that quick, but that's probably the quickest ever. In other words, it was written as we played it. <laughs> it's that yeah, very, yeah. very weird. There was no like, okay, it's going to change. I just, you know, I'm playing that riff, and then suddenly I go to the other bit, and Dave just follows me and goes to the other bit. And it's just Kevin kept that beat going, and Pete just sang what he sang, and that's what you what you hear on the record is exactly what we had in that first rehearsal. It's bizarre, it's fucking weird, but that is what happened—some magic moment. What was there a moment in that first playing the song in the first rehearsal when you ever you kind of look, you know when you look at each other and everyone starts to smile or laugh because you know it's really yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't remember the specifics on what you know. I just 
remember that, you know, we walked in, I had the riff, Kevin started with that beat and I started playing that line. Pete started singing the, what he sang. Dave was obviously following the, the, the uh, guitar line and it just went on for nine minutes. All the breaks just happened as you hear on the record. It's, it's really weird. Yeah, just and we just was heads down and fucking playing it, and uh, that's it, done. White on white, translucent like capes, back on the rack. The little goose is dead. The bats have left the bell tower. The victims have been bled by velvet lines. The black box. You have been listening to the John Robb Tapes with me, John Robb. Brought to you by Lush and Loud in the War, this podcast was produced and engineered by Andrew Payne. If you enjoy this, please retweet it and tell your mates thanks for listening. Chances are, if you like this, you like other podcasts made by Lush. So you should probably check out Tiny Revolutions, a podcast where Tiff Stevenson chats with other comedians about whether comedy can be a force for social change. Subscribe now. (laughs) 